0: I am your guest preacher this morning. And, uh, you know, um, whether I preach here or Crimson Point, one of the things I like to do is wear a tie in the pulpit. And something interesting happened on the way to church this morning. As I was carrying in the turkey gravy for our banquet, our celebration, it spilled all over the front of my tie. So I'm thinking, what should I do? Well, I called... Andy's rented a tie service. and Andy <laughs> Andy went home and got me a new tie. I think Stan, you and I feel very comfortable in a tie, so so that was kind of an interesting start to the day. Uh, next Sunday, we have a special, a special preacher, special speaker, and that is Pastor Virgil Reeve from my boyhood church, Porcelain Baptist Church in Chicago. Virgil Reeve has been in the pulpit for 50 years, and recently we celebrated his 50th celebration, his ordination um, celebration of 50 years. It was a wonderful time. In fact, um, I kind of was kidding him the other day. I said, uh, Pastor Virgil, I said, you know, this this particular ceremony that we had together is kind of like just a little glimpse of what we're going to experience in heaven, you know. And he said, well... Very much so. It was a wonderful time together. So he's going to be preaching on the five ways that God loves us. The five ways that God loves us. So that'll be really interesting. I've I've heard that sermon preached before by him, and it's it's a great sermon. He'll also be showing up at 9 o'clock for our prayer meeting time. And so I want to encourage everybody to be there. We're going to have a special study conducted by Pastor Virgil uh, at that time. So that'll be exciting. I want to make sure that, don't sleep in. I was telling Karen on the way in this morning, you know what happens when the when the main guy is gone, the head guy is gone? Usually you go off and visit other churches. No, that doesn't happen here. She says, no, they sleep in. I said, well, I, I, would, I would be hoping that they'd be visiting other churches, but you all, you all be here for that. All right, um, it's good to see Judy back, Schwer. And uh, we prayed for her this week. She underwent neck surgery, so we're going to pray for her in a little bit. And so I'd like to ask you to open up your Bibles this morning to Matthew 22. And my message is called the parable of the marriage feast. Matthew 22, verses 1 through 14. And it says this, Jesus spoke to them again in parables, saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who gave a wedding feast for his son. And he sent out his slaves to call those who had been invited to the wedding feast and they were unwilling to come. Again, he sent out other slaves saying, tell those who have been invited, behold, I have prepared my dinner, my oxen and my fatted livestock and all are butchered and everything is ready. Come to the wedding feast. But they paid no attention and went their way, one to his own farm, another to his business. And the rest seized his slaves and mistreated them and killed them. But the king was enraged, and he sent his armies and destroyed those murderers and set their city on fire. Then he said to his slaves, The wedding is ready, but those who were invited were not worthy. Go, therefore, to the main highways, and as many as you find there, invite to the wedding feast. Those slaves went out into the streets and gathered together all they found, Both evil and good, and the wedding hall was filled with dinner guests. But when the king came in and looked over the dinner guests, he saw a man there who was not dressed in wedding clothes. And he said to him, friend, how did you come in here without wedding clothes? The man was speechless. Then the king said to the servants, bind him with hand and foot. And throw him into the utter darkness, into the place, that place there is weeping and gnashing of teeth. For many are called, but few are chosen. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Our most gracious Heavenly Father, we just want to lift you up and say, Holy, 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 you are the Lord God Almighty. Father, as I stand before these people this morning and open up the word, I pray that I would preach the truth, the whole truth and nothing but the truth. And so, Father, I just pray that you'd fill us with your Holy Spirit. Come and visit us today, Lord. And, Lord, I think about those who you've blessed this week. I thank thank you for uh, taking care of Judy as she was in the hospital, that the operation went smoothly. Yes, she's experiencing pain, but she's here, and we rejoice with her. I pray for full healing there. I pray for Ryan McDowell as he's preaching this morning at uh, Crimson Point. Father, there's people that need to hear the gospel, and he is so desirous to make sure that he handles the word accurately. And so, Father, bless him for his efforts. So, Father, now, as we understand your word, speak to us. And we give you all the praise in Christ's name. Amen. Okay, if you could go ahead and put the uh, slides on. The name of my uh, particular message is, Are You Worthy of the Kingdom? Are You Worthy of the Kingdom? You go to the next slide. Well, we're going to talk about weddings, and uh, this wedding that we're going to show up here is my son and daughter-in-law's wedding. Now, the wonderful thing, the advantage of, of being the speaker is that I get to show my home slides, so that's kind of neat, right? I won't show all the home movies. Don't worry about it, but in this wedding, we had a groom, and this is the groom next, and we also had a lovely bride, Kelly. My beautiful daughter-in-law. And we also had a proud father-in-law. Father of the groom. Yours truly. And as with every wedding celebration, we had a good time. We had a celebration, didn't we? Go ahead to the next one. And you can see they're just kind of having a great time there. Cutting it up next just a wonderful celebration time, and next, I think there's one more. Okay, we'll stop right there. You know, and the uh, that event is very familiar to all of us. And in our modern society, we still celebrate uh, a wedding and, and the celebration that follows. We we know that the event, the event is very familiar to us. how many here have been to at least one wedding this last this year? Can I see a show of hands? Okay. If you've been to two weddings, keep your hands up. Three weddings. There's three weddings. Four weddings. Whoa! <laughs> we ought to give it five. Four weddings. Isn't that wonderful? Okay. I mean, it's just a, a great occasion, and uh, so we uh, we celebrate it. We have a great time at these weddings. You know, and so weddings are a tradition that are not just traditional of our society, but it goes all the way back to the Garden of Eden where when God performed the first wedding, when he declared in Genesis 2.18 that it is not good for a man to be alone, will make a helpful, a helper suitable for him. You know, God knew that that Adam's job in the garden would not fulfill him. You know, his companionship with the animals would not be fulfilling. He needed somebody like himself. He needed somebody who had body, soul, and spirit. Somebody that he could go through life with, relate to, trust, share joys, and walk through life together. And so, today we're going to talk about a special type of wedding. You know, Jesus himself recognized the importance of marriage, as God ordained in. We see his presence at at least one wedding, and that was the wedding at Cana. And John 2 says both Jesus and his disciples were invited to a wedding. Not only did he attend the wedding, but he added great support and value to the wedding by turning the water into wine. And this was a very, very important moment in terms of his ministry because it was the first miracle of his ministry. And it said that, Because of this miracle, it manifested his glory and his disciples believed in him. Well, today we're going to talk about a different wedding celebration. And this is out of Matthew 22. You know, what we look at here is Jesus is nearing the end of his earthly ministry. And his parables and discourse are beginning to take on a more ominous tone, a more serious tone, so to speak. After his triumphant entry into Jerusalem, he tells four parables. And and what those parables describe is the spiritual condition of Israel. It's wayward history and the events that are to come. So by way of, of our background leading up to our message, I want to take a look at the three parables that occur before the wedding celebration parable. So all you have to do is look across the page to Matthew 21. And we find that these three parables are very interesting parables. I call these stories from the farm because they really deal with agricultural type events. The first parable that Jesus describes here, he's talking to the Pharisees in the temple. Is the, well, not this particular paragraph or parable. This one is on the way back from uh, where he was staying to Jerusalem. But he's walking along the path to Jerusalem at this point, and he comes across a fig tree. And he sees that the fig tree is lush, that it has lots of leaves, it looks robust, and so he goes up to the fig tree and he wants to pluck figs from that fig tree to eat because he's hungry. But he notices something. The fig tree is barren. It doesn't have any fruit. And so Matthew 21, 18 to 21, talks about what happens to that fig tree. Now, when I was a a young boy growing up in Chicago, my dad planted a tree. It was an apple tree. We call it a dwarf apple tree. And every year we saw that dwarf apple tree bud with beautiful buds and blossoms on it, had lush leaves, but it never bore any fruit. Year after year, it didn't bear any fruit. And after about 10 years that my dad and mom had that tree, they said, you know what, that tree is not bearing fruit. Let's get rid of it and put it in a patio. And that's exactly what they did. They destroyed that apple tree. But Jesus says something very interesting here. He curses the fig tree. He curses it and it immediately withers away. Now what's really interesting about this particular uh, parable or this particular example is that the disciples were amazed that it withered all at once. They didn't ask him, well, why did you curse the fig tree? They were just surprised that it withered all at once. But what it was is a symbolic uh, sign or a symbol it was a symbol that this was the nation of Israel and the nation of Israel of course had a unique standing with God but what Jesus was saying is that the nation of Israel is no longer worthy of the covenant because it refused to bear fruit and one of the things that we talk about when we talk about the obligation of Israel is you know it had a huge blessing it was the nation that was given the covenant by the Lord. And so, along with that huge blessing came a huge responsibility to obey and bear fruit. Now, what did that sound like? What did that look like, bearing fruit? Well, to bear fruit means that they were to be a witness to the other nations. A witness of a, of a Messiah that was to come to save all the nations. Well, they neglected to do this. And so, they neglected to bring glory to God. And so... They were basically uh, told their covenant was no longer going to be withstanding. The second parable is the parable of the two sons, where the, if you look down here, the parable of the two sons is in verse 28. Again, we have a kind of an agricultural example. And this is a man who owns a vineyard, and he has two sons, and he tells one son, uh, go out and work in my vineyard. And immediately the son says, no, I'm not going to do that, but he changes his mind, he goes. The other son, he says, go out there and work in my vineyard. And the son says, sure, dad, I'll take care of that, I'll do that. He walks off, he doesn't go. And he's talking to the Pharisees again. And he's saying, this is an example of what happened when John the Baptist came to preach repentance to you folks. He said, the people that embraced the gospel that obeyed John the Baptist, repented and believed, were the tax collectors, the prostitutes, the sinners. You're the ones that said, yes, you paid the lip service, but you didn't do anything. You didn't obey the gospel. So those sinners, those tax collectors, those prostitutes, will end up coming to heaven before you do. A scathing rebuke to the Pharisees. The third parable is the parable of the landowner. Where again, the landowner has a vineyard and sends numerous people to collect from his tenants. The tenants are abused. The tenants are mistreated. He sends his very own son, his only son, to collect what is due him, thinking that, well, here is my son. They will certainly respect my son. They will certainly give him honor. Well, of course, his tenants say, well, here is the heir. If we kill him, then we can keep the property all to ourselves. Well, who was the son? He was speaking of himself, Jesus. And so they killed the son. And, of course, they brought judgment upon themselves because the Pharisees say, well, the landowner will go and put an end to those wretched men. Now, here's the very important part of that paragraph parable that I like. It's verse 43. It says, therefore I, therefore I say to you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing the fruit of it. So we have three parables that give us an introduction to what's happening in Israel. The fourth paragraph or parable, parable excuse me, is the parable of the wedding feast. And it's broken down into three parts. The first part we see up there. We call it the Great Celebration. And that's that's verses 1 through 7. Now, as we preach, one of the things I want to be mindful about is that there's really three underlying objectives behind the preaching. And this is something I've learned recently. And I've kind of wrote it out this way. Number one, Jesus is glorified. We want to preach that Jesus is glorified. Number two, that Christians are edified. And number three, that unbelievers are notified. Glorified, edified, and notified. How will Jesus be glorified? Well, the message should be what I like to call or is called Christocentric. In other words, Christ should be the centerpiece of our message. And Steve always reminds me that when we preach, we need to make sure we we keep Christ prominent in everything we preach. Number two, that Christians are edified. We preach so that you would be Strong in your faith, so you grow stronger in your faith, that you'd have more trust in Christ, that you would be more obedient in your faith. And number three, that unbelievers would be notified. Now, I was going to use the word terrified. It's kind of a strong word. But that unbelievers would be notified. That they must understand clearly what the consequences of their sin would be if they don't turn and repent from their sin and turn to Christ. So they need to be notified. They need to be put on notice. That's part of our message today. need to be put on notice. Well, let's talk about part one, the great celebration. The king is hosting a wedding for his son. And what this parable is doing is communicating the gospel. Communicating the gospel to who? To the Pharisees, the chief priests and Pharisees, as described in chapter 21, verse 45. Of course, the king signifies God the Father. And his son is the bridegroom, Jesus himself. Who is the bride? Who do you think the bride is? That's right, the beloved church. That's the beloved bride. Exactly right, as described in other portions of Scripture. And this wedding is the culmination of 2,000 years of God's plan of redemption for not just his people, Israel, but for the entire world, for all the nations. See, the Jews thought they had this great secret that they could keep to themselves. But it was not true. The, the promise of the Messiah was, to come was an was unconditional covenant with Israel. In other words, God had that covenant with Israel. But the promises to Israel for their safety, their security... Their victory, their prosperity, that was conditional upon them obeying the Lord. So God had fulfilled his promise, his part of the covenant, by presenting his son, Jesus, as the Messiah. And now what he's doing, he's beckoning his chosen people, the children of Israel, to come to the special ceremony, to come to the wedding. It will be a great and glorious gospel feast celebration. And it's kind of interesting here that when we go to weddings, you know, we usually present a gift to the bride and groom. You know, If you're in the wedding party, sometimes they, they give you um, gifts. But when you're a guest at the wedding, you present the gifts. But in this situation, if we're a guest at the wedding, God provides tremendous blessing and gift, gifts to us. In fact, he told the children of Israel this. Here are the honors that will be bestowed upon the guests. Number one, all the blessings of the new covenant will be yours. You'll be released from the bondage of the law. You know, one of the things that we have to understand is that the law was created by God, yes, as a direction to the nation as to how to live, but it was also there to crush us. So we would call out to God and say, it's not possible for us to obey these laws. We need some other alternative. That's what God intended for the law to do. Number two, they would have the final pardon from sin. No longer would there be a blood sacrifice required. Number three, the favor of God. No need to ever go through a priest again. Now he's our father. He is Abba. We don't need to go through a priest. The priest represents the people to God. We don't need that any longer. If we go to the wedding feast and receive these gifts there's a piece that comes from our right with a right conscience and one of the things we talk about is sanctified lives. Sanctification to me is really kind of becoming in your experience what you are in your position in Christ. So our lives become sanctified through the new covenant. Here's a great one, the promise of the Holy Spirit, the indwelling, the filling and the empowering of the Holy Spirit. You know in the Old Testament The Holy Spirit was only given to several people, usually leaders, and it was only for a certain period of time for a particular task, and then it was gone. The Holy Spirit was gone. Maybe 14 to 20 times loosely was the Holy Spirit described. But in the New Testament, under the New Covenant, you see acts of the Holy Spirit hundreds of times. And then finally, we have the promise of eternal life. So we have six blessings that come Six gifts that come to the guests who come to the marriage celebration. Those who attend the wedding celebration will be declared worthy. And they will be entitled to bride status. And this will be the New Covenant Christian Church. This will be the Jewish church, by the way, because he's talking to Israel. And of course, this new bride will become the bridegroom's love interest. And they will be nurtured, loved, and provided for. In fact, uh, it's very important for us to understand just how much Christ loves the church. He says in Ephesians 5.25, Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. He died for the church. You know, I, I have to uh, take issue with Christians that I talk to from time to time that say, you know, I ask them, where do they go to church? Well, we don't, we don't really go to church. or We're in between churches. They don't understand how important the body of believers is and how Christ died for the church. They should be desirous to attend, to worship corporately. Who would not desire to be honored by their king at this type of a celebration? So what we have here is we have the king sending out invitations. So in verse 3, we see the invitations go out. You know, who's on the guest list of these invitations? Well, these are the noblemen of the kingdom, so to speak. These are the dukes and lords, the knights and squires, the landed gentry, the people of pedigree. These were the Israelites, God's chosen people. They were the beautiful people. They were the ones that were chosen. And so they were given great favor and they were sent the invitation first. They were people of privilege, And they knew it. Well, who were the slaves that went out with the invitation? Well, they're the Old Testament saints. They were the Isaiah's and Jeremiah's and Ezekiel's. They went out to proclaim the word. They went out to invite people throughout the ages to the marriage feast with God. In the New Testament, it would be John the Baptist who cried out, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. And behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. It was the apostles. Those are the ones that went out to invite people to the wedding celebration. It says, but they, meaning the people, were unwilling to come. Not that they were unable to come, but they were unwilling to come. They chose not to come. These high and mighty, the select of the land, decided to turn their back on the invitation and not to attend and be honored. Now, this is what I call passive indifference. They kind of just shrugged off. They said, well, we don't want to come. Have you ever sent an invitation out to somebody with an RSVP? And not only do they not come, but they don't even answer the RSVP? Has that happened to you? I think that's happened to this church, by the way. No. Yes. <laughs> kind of rude. And so if it's happened to you, you know, how does that make you feel? Pretty bad, right? You know, first, your your first reaction might be hurt. Okay, you're kind of hurt. But then as you think about it, you might do a slow burn. How dare they not answer my RSVP or even come? They didn't even tell me they weren't coming. You might even feel like calling them up and giving you a piece of their mind, giving them a piece of your mind. Well, Imagine the king sending out invitations and nobody shows up. Nobody answers the RSVP. That's what happened to this king. You think he got angry? Well, we have to realize that this king is a good and loving and patient king. He's willing to overlook the mistakes and give his followers the benefit of the doubt. He might, in his thoughts, think, well, maybe they didn't get the word or... Maybe they didn't understand the importance of this celebration. I don't think that's the way God thought. But that's kind of the way I would think if I was giving my people the benefit of their doubt, of the doubt. So they sent out another invitation. And this time he offers features and benefits. He says this. Folks, he says, My slaves are going out to tell you that this is going to be a great celebration. It's a feast of fellowship reserved for only my most beloved Subjects. It's going to be a great family reunion in the making for over 2,000 years. It's going to be a meeting of all the clansmen, a great, great reconciliation of all the people. You'll want to come. Number two, not only will it be a great celebration, it will be a wedding celebration. It will be the uniting of the ever promised groom, my son Jesus, the Messiah, and you will be the honored guest. Number three, not only is it going to be a celebration, a great celebration, not only a wedding celebration, but it is a royal wedding celebration. Now, one of the things we often get the idea of is that, you know, this particular celebration was kind of an option for people to attend. But folks, I believe that this invitation was the king's edict. I believe that he required people to come to this wedding. How do I know that? Because in Deuteronomy 6, 5, he tells his people, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. Not loving and not obeying the Lord God Jehovah has consequences. And so he is telling these people, you need to be there. You must attend. He also says, tell those who have been invited, behold, I prepared my dinner, my oxen, my fatted livestocks, All have been butchered and everything is ready. Come to the wedding feast. God is providing redemption and salvation to his people, Israel. Pardon is ready. Peace is ready. Comfort is ready. Promises are ready. Heaven at last is ready. God does it all. And this is the picture of grace, isn't it? God does it all. We don't have to do anything but show up and respond to the call. This week I was talking to somebody that I work out with at the gym. He's a Facebook friend of mine. Based on what he was telling other people on Facebook because of the material he was reading, Tolkien and, and uh, some others, I thought he might be a Christian. So I, I asked him, I said, do you know the Lord? And he said, well, I used to know the Lord, but not anymore. I said, well, what happened? He said, well, I can't believe for a minute that you get to heaven by grace alone. I believe that you have to work some to get to heaven. Because faith without works is dead. Right, Phil? I said, You misunderstand what God is telling us there. You misunderstand what grace is all about. It's all about Him and what He does for us, nothing that we do for Him. So, verse 5 to 7 gives the response to this. Second invitation. And one of the things I like about this is that he's given these people two chances. Two chances. Second invitation, five to seven. It says that they paid no attention and went their way. One to his own farm, another to his business. And the rest seized his slaves and mistreated them and killed them. But the king was enraged. And he sent his armies and destroyed those murderers and set their city on fire. The gospel is completely ignored. Now in America today... We don't see a lot of active rebellion against the church like you would in other areas. Steve and Darren are going to India where Christians have been martyred. Churches have been attacked. Christians have been tortured for their faith. No, in America we have this passive indifference. Everybody is a Christian, they go to church. In fact, I was asking somebody the other day, I said, I want to pray for your brother because I know he's undergoing surgery. Does he know the Lord? And he says, well, yes, he does. He goes to church. And he missed my point entirely. Just because you go to church doesn't mean that you're a Christian. I call it passive indifference. So one of the things that we need to do is we need to examine their rebellion. And all we have to do is look at Acts chapter 7, 51 and 52. We don't have to go there right now. I'll read it to you. But Stephen is telling these people their physical, their spiritual condition. He says, "You men are stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart, always in ears, and always resisting the Holy Spirit. You are doing just as your father did. Which one of you prophets did not? Which one of, your, of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? They killed those who had previously announced the coming of the righteous one, whose betrayers and murderers, murderers, you now have become." And so what we see here is we see it going from passive indifference, saying, well, we'll ignore the invitation. We can go out to our farms and our business to active rebellion. Now we have a group of rebels. We have murderers. And we have active rebellion going on. So either passive indifference or active rebellion will be punished by God. So what are the consequences of the rebellion? Well... We have to understand what's happening here. It says the king has infinite patience and, and love and mercy, and we must all also realize that he's just at the same time. So he can't tolerate sin. And, and one of the things that I think is happening here is that there is a rebellion, not just against God, but against his Holy Spirit. In fact, listen to what Jesus says in Matthew 12:31. He says, therefore, I say to you, any sin and blasphemy shall be forgiven people, but blasphemy blasphemy against the Holy Spirit shall not be forgiven. So that's what's happening. The people are resisting the Holy Spirit. Just as Stephen said to his persecutors. Well, once the nation rejected the message of, of the king and would ultimately kill his messenger, Jesus, they had committed the unpardonable sin and their fate was sealed. Indeed, didn't they cry out to to Pilate, crucify Christ, crucify him, hang him on a cross. And then they said something along this line. They said, his blood shall be on us and our children. His blood shall be on us and our children. That's what they told Pilate. Well, now, I don't think it's a coincidence that in 70 AD, the Romans attacked And destroyed Jerusalem. In fact, Josephus said that not only was the temple destroyed, the Jews were scattered throughout the world. We're not reunited until, what was it, 1949. There were over a million people killed during this rebellion. A million people, a million Jews were killed. And so, as we come to the end of part one, one of the things I want to do is. Take the opportunity to give notice to those that might be here that are unbelievers, those who have not fully trusted Christ and his merits for forgiveness. You know, um, the king is inviting us to a wedding, and uh, it's a wedding celebration that he's invited us to. So he may be calling you right now. He may be calling to you come to the wedding. Come to the wedding celebration. Will you come to the wedding? Flip up uh, part number two. Part number two is the great surprise. The great surprise. And I was talking to Darren last week about this. You know, we were talking a little bit about this portion of Scripture. And he called it shock and awe, which I kind of liked. I like that definition of it. You know, in these verses, which is verses 8 and 10, 8 to 10, it says that, uh, uh, I'll go ahead and read it for you here. Then he said to his slaves, the wedding is ready, but those who were invited were not worthy. Go, therefore, to the main highways, and as many as you find there, invite to the wedding feast. So we find in these verses that God is extending his mercy to us in a very surprising way. He said to the slaves, go out because everything's ready. But he also says this. He says, the ones that were invited were not worthy. What a horrible pronouncement. Can you stand the thought of God declaring you to be not worthy? There's some other places in Scripture where people are told they are not worthy, where God declares them to be not worthy. And not worthy means that they're declared by God not to meet the standard. That they fail the test. That they have no value in God's kingdom. And some of those examples where we are told that they're not fit for the king could be this. Here's one, the unfaithful steward in Matthew 25. He buried his talent. He was unworthy. The rich man in the story of Lazarus, his selfishness deemed him unworthy. Ananias and Sapphira cheating God in Acts chapter 5 they are declared unworthy. The self-righteous young ruler in Mark 10, declared to be unworthy. And the rich farmer, who was not rich toward God in Luke 12, he was declared to be unworthy. So what is the consequence of being unworthy? Skip down to verse 13 and it explains the consequence of being unworthy. It says, Then the king said to the servants, bind him hand and foot and throw him into the utter darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. In two weeks' time I'm going to be preaching on part three of this message and what it means to be cast out into utter darkness in regard to not being unworthy. Well, lest we be accused of beating up on the Jews too much on the nation of Israel, we have to understand that we also, as Gentiles, were unworthy. Unworthy because we had no covenant with God, first of all. But for that matter, all mankind is unworthy ever since the days of Adam. The Bible says, For all have sinned and fallen short of the kingdom of God. For the wages of sin is death. There is none righteous, no, not one. We are just as guilty before God as the Jews are. But it just so happens that Jews had the inside track on the covenant. They were the first there, first in line, but they squandered their opportunity for the redemption. So we look at verse 10 and what is going on here. Verse 10 says the slaves went out yet a third time. God is so merciful. He is so patient. He extends the invitation a third time to us. And he says this, Gathered together all they are found, both good, evil and good, and the wedding hall was filled with guests. Now what is this? Who are these people that have been called in to the wedding celebration? Well, they are the Gentiles. They're the ones that were described in chapter 21, verse 43. Therefore I say to you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing the fruit of it. Now, contrary to what the Jews believes, Jews believe the Gentiles were always part of, the covenant of grace. Yet the Jews considered them second-class citizens. Turn with me, if you would, for a second to Isaiah 56. We'll go back in the Old Testament and see what God says about these outcasts, the Gentiles. Okay. Okay. Isaiah 56 verses 6 and 7 says this, and this is God addressing the foreigners, the Gentiles, you and I. Also the foreigners who join themselves to the Lord to minister to him and to love the name of the Lord, to be his servants. Everyone who keeps from profaning the Sabbath and holds fast my covenant, even those I will bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be acceptable on my altar. For my house will be called a house of prayer for all the people. They'll make them have joy. That's wonderful to think that God has provided for the Gentiles and we don't have time to go into a lot of the doctrine behind that. But he does say the Gentiles are part of the covenant of grace. So what is the great surprise? Well, We see many people in the New Testament being surprised at the fact that the Gentiles were now given the gospel. This is kind of interesting because Jesus talked about it several times during his earthly ministry. Yet Peter was amazed when Cornelius came to Christ. And other people were amazed. So now the great surprise is that the king has opened the wedding celebration to all those of low esteem. You know, if the Jews considered themselves to be the spiritual noblemen of their time, then they considered the Gentiles to be the untouchables, the reprobates to be avoided. But the great surprise, the gospel to the Gentiles, um, has some very significant. Meanings to us. And one of the things we, we see here is that we see that it's not expected. It's unexpected and not anticipated. I say it this way that the Gentiles didn't know what they didn't know. They had no idea that the gospel was available. They didn't even know God. In fact, Paul says in Ephesians two twelve, he says, Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, excluded from the commonwealth of Israel. And strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. They were excluded from the covenant. They had no idea there was a God or a Jesus or a Messiah. Yet God opened the door of salvation to them. They were fat, dumb, and happy and on their way to hell and didn't know it. Secondly, this invitation, the great surprise, was universal. It was made available to everyone. Go and as many as you can find there. Invite. Whoever you find on the highways and byways, invite them to the wedding celebration. Invite them to the party. Make sure they're included. It's universal. And thirdly, the great surprise is that this was a tremendous success because the wedding hall was filled. Standing room only. People responded to the New Covenant. Well, as we wrap things up, what can we apply about this, this passage? Well, can you imagine being a guest at this celebration and be given the opportunity not only to attend this royal wedding, but to be elevated to a position of honor, to become part of the royal family, and that's what's actually happening here. This is what God is offering through his son, Jesus Christ. It's a position of eternal security, joy, and fellowship with the creator of the universe. It really is created for those who are worthy. And we're going to talk more about how you become worthy next time in two weeks' time. It'll be part three. And that particular part is called The Great Pretender. There was somebody who showed up at my son's wedding, by the way, who was not supposed to be there. He was a wedding crasher. And so I found out about this after the wedding. And after this man was escorted out, I thought, well, isn't that an interesting um, example of the great pretender, the wedding crasher at the marriage celebration? We're going to talk about that in two weeks. So let's go to the Lord in prayer. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we do pray that today... We spoke truth, Father. That Christ would be glorified. That he would be held in high regard, Father. That he would be esteemed above all else, above my inability to communicate the word, our inability to understand what we hear, Father. I pray that he would be honored, as rightfully he should be. And Father, I pray that believers here would be edified, that what we preached about today would help embolden their faith, Would help them be more obedient, Father, to trust you more, to become more sanctified in their daily lives. And, Father, I pray for those that are unbelievers that might be here, that they would be put on notice, Father, that they would understand the terrors of consequence of disobeying the gospel, of not repenting from their sin, Father. May they do business with you today. May they not leave here without getting right with you, without repenting, Father, embracing Christ as their Savior. Father, we ask that you would count us worthy. And it's in Christ's name we pray these things. Amen.